If you have your Bible with you, we are continuing our series in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 7. Would you please stand for the reading of God's Word out of respect for Him? Buckle up. This is kind of a hard chapter, but we're going to take two weeks to look at it. But I think for context, I'm going to read the whole chapter in both weeks, but we're going to be focusing on the first um, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote them down, the dream, and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another, like a leper, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes, the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames, its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed, and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away. But their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel... My spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Then I desired to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the rest exceedingly terrifying, 
with its teeth of iron and claws of bronze, and which devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. And about the ten horns that were on its head, and the other horn that came up, and before which three of them fell, the horn that had eyes and a mouth that spoke great things, and that seemed greater than its companions. As I looked, this horn made war with the saints and prevailed over them, until the Ancient of Days came, and judgment was given for the saints of the Most High. And the time came when the saints possessed the kingdom. Thus he said, As for the fourth beasts, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the former ones, and shall put down three kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and shall think to change the times and the law, and they shall be given into his hand, for a time, times, and half a time. But the court shall sit in judgment, and his dominion shall be taken away, to be consumed and destroyed to the end. And the kingdom and the dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. His kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me, and my color changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. This is the living and active word of the living and true God. Please receive it as such, and you may be seated. There's a quote which is often repeated by theologians and pastors throughout uh, the years. It likely finds its origins in Gregory the Great's comment and his commentary on the book of Job. Gregory writes, Scripture is like a river, again, broad and deep, shallow enough here for the lamb to go wading, but deep enough there for the elephant to swim. Here he compares Scripture to a great river, which is both broad and deep. On its shallows a lamb may wade, but in its depths an elephant could swim. The point is, in this quote, there are some passages of Scripture which are easier to understand, and there are some passages of Scripture which are harder to understand. And even in one passage, there are truths that are evident and clear, but there can be depths that we still struggle to mine. In theological terms, we talk about the perspicuity of Scripture, which is a really unclear term which means clarity. It's a word which talks about Scripture as its doctrine of salvation, its doctrine of God, who Christ is, the most important things that we need to know for salvation. That is perfectly clear in Scripture, that salvation is by faith in Christ alone. But there are other parts of Scripture which are difficult. And that's when we get the, the Protestant principle of Scripture interprets Scripture. When we have one unclear passage, we use other passages which are clear on that topic, and it helps us to understand them. Daniel 7 is well known for its depths of complexity, in which an elephant can definitely swim, and I was trying to swim <laughs> this week, but I hope to show us 
that it also has shallows in which lambs such as we are can also wade. That is very clear about God and his kingdom in Christ. What we'll see today is that whereas the beastly kingdoms and kings of this earth come and go, yet the beatific kingdom and king of God, that is Christ, him and his kingdom are everlasting. We must therefore turn from the princes, the kings, and the kingdoms of this world and look to the kingdom of God and rest in Christ as our king. To come to this conclusion, we're going to look at just two points today. First, the earthly kingdoms of man, verses 1 through 8, and second, the eternal kingdom of God, verses 9 through 14. Earthly kingdoms of man and eternal kingdom of God. Let's look at that first point, the earthly kingdoms of man. In many ways, Daniel chapter 7 is the center and climax of the book. But it's also the connecting link or hinge for the two parts of the book. Chapter 7 is the last chapter which is written in Aramaic. Remember that Daniel started writing, changed from Hebrew to Aramaic in chapter 2, and it goes and ends in this chapter. And as we talked about, the reason why Daniel wrote in that way is because he was dealing mainly, chiefly, with the nations of this world in Babylon. So he used the common language to show that universal scope. So that is where it ends here. Chapter 7, though, also connects these previous five chapters with the five chapters that is beginning to happen now, which will be a series of visions which Daniel himself receives and personally um, tells us about. In this way, Daniel 7 is seen to be a hinge which holds the unity of the book together, even amid the diversity of its languages and content. But as we'll see over these next couple weeks, Daniel 7 also speaks to the heart and central message of the book as God defeats the kingdoms of man and bestows his eternal kingdom on his servant, the one like a son of man. That being said, by way of introduction, let us now consider the detail of the text. Verse 1 states, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. The first thing you may be thinking is Belshazzar in the Babylonian kingdom. I thought he died in the last chapter and that kingdom was given over to the Medes and Persians. Uh, that is right and a reasonable question since verses 5 through 6 have recorded that. Yet, as mentioned, this text is transitional. The previous chapter dealt with God's dealings with foreign kings through dreams, visions, and deliverances. But this chapter and those which follow deal with the dreams and visions God gives to Daniel regarding the kingdom of God. As such, he's not following a chronological order, but he tells us about a dream which Daniel had years prior while Belshazzar was reigning. The language of visions in his head as he lay on his bed, that's the same language about Nebuchadnezzar when he received dreams, and indeed Daniel gets troubled even as Nebuchadnezzar had as well. So Daniel writes down his dream, 
And he tells us that he saw in visions of the night the four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. The reference to the four winds of heaven is a way of talking about the four corners of the earth. Winds coming from all the parts of the earth and stirring up the great sea. And the sea has a, an ominous uh, notion to it in this text. And from this great sea, it's stirred up by the four winds of heaven, Daniel sees four beasts arise. He describes the first beast saying that it was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man and the mind of a man was given to it. As we talked about too, Daniel, the first seven chapters parallel each other. And the parallel passage to Daniel 7 is Daniel 2. If you recall, in Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, received a dream which disturbed him. He saw a gigantic, colossal statue which had a head of gold and it had arms and shoulders of silver and such a decreasing value of metals. And that's what he saw. But here we see four beasts. And the first beast is that like a lion with wings on its back, like an eagle. The lion is the king of beasts, and eagles are the king of birds. This parallels the golden head of the statue. In other words, this is a way of talking about the Babylonian kingdom. In Babylon, and we know this from history and archaeology, it was common to have lions painted with wings like this. This was a common symbol in them, and it would be readily apparent. So this first beast represents Babylon. And you can even get that from the plucking of the wings. Uh, remember, Nebuchadnezzar was humbled by the Lord, and he got, was given a mind of a beast. And then when he repented, he was given a mind of a man, even as this talks about it being made to stand up and being given a mind of a man. He describes the second beast then, and he goes through these fast. And I think there's a purpose of that, showing how God brings these kingdoms who think they're so great, but then they collapse. And then there's another, and it collapses. And that's in contrast to the eternal kingdom of God, which he will describe. <coughs> he describes the other beast, the next one, in verse 5, saying, And behold, another beast, the second one, like a bear, it was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth, and it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. Unlike the lion, the bear is not the king of beasts, but it is noted for its strength and ferocity. Some identified this kingdom with the sole kingdom of Media, whereas others see it as the joint kingdoms of Media and Persia. And this is really the hardest part of the interpretation where it begins to change depending on your view. And we'll talk about that more. But it could be referring to Media, or it could be referring to Media and Persia as they reigned together. And there's a bit of a confusing history with that and why that's the case with Cyrus. But we don't need to go into all those details. Likewise, some see the three bones in its mouth as indicating three kingdoms that were devoured by it 
and destroyed. Or others might just see the, the three bones in its mouth and it's still standing as indicating that it is ready and hungry and unsatiated, that it is ready to devour another. That it has its shoulder raised up. Some see that as indicating that it is Media and Persia, because Persia was superior in that time. But the, the being raised up could also just indicate that it's ready to pounce and devour another victim. Those who view the second beast as the kingdom of Media and Persia see this third kingdom, which arises, as Greece. But the, the leopard and its wings representing the swiftness of Alexander's conquering, and he did conquer most of the known world very fast at a young age, and its four wings and heads could represent his four generals which inherited the kingdom after him. Or it just might indicate the, the dominance that he had of the four corners of the earth, four heads and four wings. Then verse 7 describes a fourth beast saying, After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. This beast, with teeth of iron, reminds us of the, the statue which had iron legs, in Daniel 2. Again, those who think the second beast refers to the soul kingdom of Media identify this beast with Greece, whereas those who identify the second beast with the combined kingdom of the Medes and Persians identify this fourth beast with Rome. And that's really the traditional interpretation of this beast and of that statue, that the kingdoms go from Babylon to Media, Persia, Greece, then Rome. This beast is said to have ten horns, which some take as referring to its, its sovereign expanse, with others taking each horn as referring to ten literal kings, which would arise. In reference to the horns, Daniel adds in verse 8, I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. And as we'll, we'll talk about next week, those great things is blasphemy against the Most High God. Again, those who see the second beast as merely media understand this fourth beast to be the Greek kingdom, and the little horn to be Antiochus Epiphanes, who came to prominence among the split kingdom of Greece with the four generals, and he was a descendant of that split, who really became the most prominent and who was a wicked ruler, and he tormented the people of God. But more on that later. At this, at this point, I'll lay my cards down that I think all these details, all this confusion, I lean towards the kingdom's being Babylon, Media, then Medo-Persia, and then Greece. And my reasons mainly for that is in chapter 8, almost all commentators agree that this is talking about uh, Greece and Antiochus Epiphanes, and he's described as a little horn in that text. And it's the same word that's used here, 
as this is a confusing thing, I'm not speaking as an authority on that. Each of us has to decide on their own with that. But it does make a difference with your interpretation and also how you view the end times and such. But I acknowledge that the traditional conservative view identifying the fourth beast as Rome has its merits, but I think it unnecessarily extends the, the ten horns and the little horn into the future, uh, because then they see the little horn as a reference to an antichrist figure. But we'll talk about more of that next week. These specific details and debates are elephant-like, which we must not get washed away in. Rather, we need to focus on the shallow waters in which we may wade as lambs. This is where the contrast with the parallel passage in chapter 2 helps reflect on reality. In chapter 2, the vision of the four kingdoms comes through Nebuchadnezzar's pagan perspective. So when Nebuchadnezzar looked at this statue, which represented four kingdoms, he saw it as a glorious golden head, and he saw it in more glamorous terms. But now we get the perspective from the people of God, the perspective from God in this vision. And when they see the kingdoms, when God looks at the kingdoms, he sees them as bestial, as monstrous, as grotesque and cruel. That is the perspective on heaven, on these kingdoms that think they are so great. In other words, through these two visions, chapter 2 and chapter 7, we get both the earthly and the heavenly perspective on the kingdoms and kings of this world. From the earthly perspective, they seem glamorous and glorious, whereas from the heavenly perspective, they are seen to be bestial and debased. How do you look at the kings and kingdoms of this world? Do we view the things of this world and their pomp and pride as glorious and glamorous? Or do we see them as they truly are, bestial and debased? The book of Daniel gives us the opportunity to step back and consider the kingdoms and the kings of this world. All of that, this world, counts of value. Think of all the cruelty through all the kingdoms and the nations which have come. Think of all the bestial ways that we have harmed and treated each other. The ways that kings and dictators have stomped on the poor and have not cared for them, even as God called Nebuchadnezzar out through Daniel and told him to repent of this. This book gives us the opportunity to view things from the perspective of heaven. And it asks us, what do we take value in? What do we glorify? Where do we find our value? And the truth that this book is trying to show us is that the only value, the only lasting, the only permanent, the only glorious king and kingdom is the Lord Jesus Christ and the kingdom which he establishes. Which brings us to our second and last point. We've just looked at this earthly kingdom of man, which is fleeting and false. Now let's consider the eternal kingdom of God. In Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar had been given the vision of the statue of gold, silver, as we talked about, bronze and iron, but which was struck, you recall, in the feet by a little stone that was cut from a mountain, not with human hands. And this, this colossal statue completely collapses and is destroyed. And from this stone, God makes a great mountain. 
And this represented the kingdom of God, which he is going to establish, even as Jesus Christ is that stone chosen and precious. In a similar way, here in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel has seen the succession of four beasts, representing four earthly kingdoms. Now in verses 9 through 10, his vision changes. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before it. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were open. In the midst of Daniel's bestial vision of the four kingdoms of man, here we see the Ancient of Days, with thrones being placed, and him taking his seat in judgment. The Ancient of Days is a, a title for God speaking to his eternality. He's the Ancient of Days. And more specifically, as we'll see in this context, it's referring to God the Father. He is said to be clothed in white and with a hair like wool, indicating his, his purity, his holiness, his eternality, and his wisdom. He's sitting in his holiness in the context of judgment. This is emphasized even more by the flames issuing from his throne and the thousands upon thousands of angels waiting and standing before him and with the books of judgment being open. Within the court of God's almighty judgment, these books represent the, the record of debt of humanity, particularly these kings and these kingdoms in this context. As Daniel is observing this transcendent scene, he states in verse 11, I looked then because the sound of the great words that was, the horn was speaking, and as I looked, the beast was killed, and its body destroyed and given over to be burned. In verse 8, we are told that out of the fourth beast arose a little horn speaking great things. Here Daniel's eyes are drawn from the great throne because of the sound and great boastful words which this little horn was speaking. But even as Daniel does that, Daniel immediately sees the beast represented by the horn killed and its body destroyed and given to be burned with fire, imagery that betokens of hellfire. Absolute and immediate judgment is placed on this little horn in his kingdom. But to the rest of the beasts, it's said that their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. This does not mean that they continue to reign, but the life of their peoples and cultures, perhaps. I think it indicates the, the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ as he conquered all his and our enemies. And now, really, Jesus sits on high with all the kings and kingdoms of earth being made his footstool. I think that's what it means when it says that they were permitted to live for a time. In beholding this judgment, Daniel also sees hope of salvation. So verse 13 states, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. As we said, earlier Nebuchadnezzar had seen a stone cut without human hands, indicating God's work which destroyed the kingdoms of man and became a great kingdom. Now Daniel's vision 
in this vision, we get more clarity. So we're told of a figure, one like a son of man coming on the clouds of heaven and approaching the Ancient of Days. Uh, the Aramaic of one like a son of man, it's really just saying someone like a human being. It's not an official title uh, like we will later come to think about it in the New Testament. But right now it's just indicating that he sees someone apart from angels and the bestial kingdoms, he sees someone like a man. And he's approaching on the clouds of heaven. Um, in Scripture, it's God the Lord, Yahweh, who rides on the clouds of heaven. But here, this one, like a man, comes on the clouds of heaven, and he approaches the Ancient of Days. And we're told in verse 14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall never pass away, and his kingdom shall not be destroyed. Again, earlier in Daniel, this figure was described vaguely as a stone cut without human hands, which would destroy the kingdoms of man, but would be turned into a great mountain and an eternal kingdom, with all peoples, nations, and languages serving him. But here we are told more specifically of one like a human being, who will come and to whom God will give an everlasting kingdom, a kingdom to which all peoples, nations, and languages will serve. Remember that Nebuchadnezzar and Darius, after they were amazed at God's deliverance, they made a decree that all peoples, nations, and languages should honor the Most High God. So here, God gives this kingdom to the Son of Man and this dominion to which all peoples, nations, and languages will serve. And this is an everlasting kingdom. As we'll see, this vision and message was both delightful and distressful to Daniel and his original audience. To Daniel and his original audience, this vision showed that God's people were to suffer still greatly under the oppression of God's enemies. Whether you take that as Antiochus Epiphany or Rome, the people of God have much suffering coming in their future, and this distresses Daniel. To us living on the other side of the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ, this text brings us both hope and joy. As Jesus entered his earthly ministry, he entered a world ruled by these bestial kingdoms and kings. But as the eternal word and son of God, he entered this world like one, like a son of man, even as we professed and confessed that he was born of the Virgin Mary. And he lived that life for us. In his earthly life, Jesus' favorite designation for himself was calling himself the son of man, or one like a son of man. Uh, to his Aramaic audience, this would have sounded like him just calling himself a man. But to those who knew Daniel and its significance, he was claiming to be the stone cut without human hands and the one who will receive from the Father an eternal kingdom. As we look on Jesus in the Gospels, do we view him as a mere stone, as a man unworthy of our attention and worship? Or do we view him as that stone cut without human hands, as the one like a son of man who receives an eternal kingdom? 
We began today by considering both the complexity and the simplicity of Scripture. There are depths in which elephants swim, and we've talked about some of that, but there are also breaths in which lambs may wade. The particular kingdoms and kings spoken of in this text pertains to the depth of Scripture, but the breadth and simple message of Scripture is clear. God is sovereign, and Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. The question is, will we bow down and will we worship and serve God as our king? Or do we want the destruction as those bestial kingdoms? In our sermon today, we've talked about Daniel 2, which refers to that stone cut without human hands, which destroys the kingdom of man and becomes a great mountain. Jesus Christ is this stone. He was rejected by the builders, but he became the cornerstone on which the church is being built. In our sermon today, we also talked about the one like a son of man who received an eternal kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should worship and serve him. Jesus Christ is the son of man, the eternal son of God, who took on human flesh and for us human beings and for our salvation, lived, died, and rose again and ascended on high. He is the stone which has crushed the earthly kingdoms, and he is the king to whom belongs all of the kingdoms. After his resurrection, you may recall, Jesus appeared to his disciples and declared to them that all authority, both in heaven and on earth, had been given to him, and he commanded them to go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations through baptism and through teaching them all that he has commanded, the ordinary means of grace, the simple things which we are doing now. King Jesus is using these to build his kingdom and to build us up. Again, before the face of his disciples, Jesus ascended on the clouds of heaven, it says in the book of Acts, that he ascended on the cloud of heavens to his father, the Ancient of Days. And as he was ascending, his angels took his disciples aside and he said, Men, why are you looking in the sky? This Jesus who went in the clouds will again return in the same manner. Go therefore and do that which he has commanded. As we'll look at next week, this Daniel passage has both the aspect of Jesus' first coming and when he ascended on high to the right hand of the Father. And he is now reigning and ruling over us. But it also refers to the second coming of Christ in a like manner on the clouds of heaven to redeem his people and to conquer all his and our enemies. To all of us here today, Jesus Christ, the stone that was rejected, the Son of Man, has ascended on high and has poured out his Spirit upon his church. Will we look to him in faith? Or will he be the stone that becomes a stumbling stone to us? Is it foolishness to us? Or do we see the wisdom and the power of God who is subduing all people to himself? Let us then look to King Jesus in faith, respond to him in faithfulness, and look in hope for the return of our Lord on the clouds of glory to take away all of our sin and all of our misery, all of our suffering, and to reign forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. 
Lord Jesus Christ, how thankful we are that you have risen, that through your cross you have conquered all your and our enemies, and that you ascended on the clouds of heaven to the Ancient of Days. And now all the kingdoms of earth are being made your footstool. Lord Jesus, we pray that you would humble all of our hearts and have us look to you in faith and hope and love. Lord, break down the pride of our heart and have us look to Jesus who humbled himself for us and for our salvation. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that from your throne on high you mediate for us, that you intercede for us, and that you are making disciples of the nations through your word and through your sacraments. We pray now that you would build us up in love and that the rest of this worship would be unto your glory. It's in Jesus, your precious name we pray. Amen. When he was resurrected from the dead, as we talked about, he met with his disciples. Jesus declared to them that he was approaching the Ancient of Days to receive that dominion. And he told them that all power in heaven and on earth had been given to him. And this power he uses to make disciples of the nations. And he tells his disciples how to do this. And he says, by teaching them all I have commanded, and by baptism, referring to the sacraments. The way that the Lord Jesus Christ on high is reigning and ruling and subduing the nations is through the simple means of the preaching of the word and the administration of the sacraments. This is a means by which our Lord Jesus subdues us to himself. This is a meal which represents his conquering of the kingdoms, his conquering of sin, death, and the devil, which he did through his death on the cross and was vindicated in his resurrection from the dead. This is a meal which represents Christ's victory and the endurance of his kingdom, even as this meal has been celebrated thousands, two thousand years, hence until the end when he comes again on that glorious cloud to redeem us. That being said, this is a meal is for those who have bowed the knee to King Jesus, those who see him not as a, a stone or rock of stumbling or of offense, but as the chief cornerstone through whom the church is being built up. This is one that does not see Jesus as a mere human being, maybe a, even a good human being. This is one that sees him as the one like the Son of Man, who as the Lord rides on the clouds of heaven and receives an eternal dominion. This is a meal for those who are repenting of their sins, who are trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. This is a meal for those who have been baptized, who are members of a church, and who are actively repenting of their sins and looking to Christ in faith. If this doesn't describe you, I would ask that you let these elements pass by. But I would also add, do not let the Lord Jesus Christ pass by. He has been proclaimed, and he's being presented to you now. The only thing holding you back is your own unbelief. Look to the Lord Jesus Christ in faith. And you, as we'll see even next week, we will receive with him and union with him that eternal kingdom and all the benefits of enjoying the fellowship of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. To that end, let us go to the Lord and pray that he would use these ordinary elements and set them aside to our, our spiritual benefit and growth and grace. Lord Jesus Christ, you are King of King, 
kings and Lord of lords. And you sit sovereignly on your throne. And how thankful we are that you are a humble king and that you serve us. You serve us this glorious meal. Lord, we pray that you would take these elements of bread and wine and that you would use them to subdue our hearts even more to you. Lord, I pray for those of us who partake of this, that we would partake with faith, knowing that by your Spirit we are made to feed on Christ and that we are nourished. For those who are perhaps not ready to take, Lord, I pray that they would see your glory and they would see their need for you and that you would make their hearts so restless that they will not rest until they rest in you. Lord, we pray that you would do this work. Be merciful. We pray that you would be honored and glorified through our celebration of this meal today. It's in your name we pray, Lord Jesus. Amen.